Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. So we have a lot of hummingbirds around here in our Southern California desert neighborhood, and one of them got stuck and disoriented in our open garage the other day. Remember that, Lori? Yeah. So this uh, poor little guy just couldn't figure out that the opening straight ahead was where he should go. He kept on wanting to go up, and I did a little reading about hummingbirds and learned that that's their natural instinct. They're not used to being closed in, and when they need to escape, they, they go up. And so it's a real treacherous situation for a hummingbird because they need to eat almost continuously. So you need to take an object like a broom or a rake. I saw a YouTube of that, and you just hold it underneath the hummingbird and allow the hummingbird to perch there and then gently just walk them outside so they can fly away. And eventually, the hummingbird will get tired enough that he wants to take a little rest and will just perch right on this little object. So that's a good tip to help the hummingbird get out of your open garage. The other thing that I uh, recently learned is that if you've got a motorized garage door that's built anytime in the past few decades, chances are it has an emergency handle in case the power goes off and you need to get out. And this is a red color handle by law. And the hummingbirds are attracted to this. They They think it contains nectar. So you want to get rid of this red colored object either by painting it or wrapping it with electrical tape, black electrical tape, so it doesn't attract the hummingbird in the first place. So that was our recent little hummingbird experience, and it made us wonder what are some other things that you can do, like around the house, to help the wildlife that's sharing your neighborhood, right? Yeah. Well, one thing you can do is be sparing or even eliminate the use of pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals in your home and landscaping. Many chemicals used outdoors to kill certain insects also harm birds and insects that can be beneficial to us as well, like bees and butterflies. So I would say use as few chemicals in the outdoors as possible, right? You know, I've had some experience, you've smelled it with some of these products that are based on essential oils. They're very pungent. The insects don't like them at all, and they uh, are non-toxic. And never use rodenticides. Using poison bait to control rodents will always secondarily poison the raptors and other predators that eat the sick rodents. And there are many other humane alternatives to control rodents that are bothering you. Right. Another one, Peter, never feed wild mammals such as deer, raccoons, coyotes, obviously bears, right? Right. You know, where I used to live, I had a neighbor that would put cat food out for the raccoons. Well, raccoons can also attack and kill small dogs and cats. And they can carry rabies. So feeding these wild animals teaches them to be dependent on humans, and they end up losing their their, uh, fear of humans. They're more likely to come into conflict with people, and conflict with people almost always ends up being a bad situation for the animals. Right. On a similar note, put garbage and your litter in garbage cans. Food scraps by the side of the road can attract wildlife, which can then get hit by cars. And of course, if you are in bear country, you've got to abide by the local regulations about how to dispose of your trash when bears are around. They're very clever. Here's another one, Peter. Keep your dogs on leash when walking in open spaces or in areas where certain birds might be nesting. And in our area, a lot of which is designated bighorn sheep habitat, There are hiking trails, and you're not supposed to bring your dogs because even if you don't see the sheep, they know the dogs are out there, and it really messes up their mating rituals. 
So don't be a selfish dog guardian and just leave your dog at home if you're hiking near any of those trails. Good point. And finally, Peter, we've talked about this before. On When you're on vacation, be a smart souvenir shopper. Don't buy illegal or protected wildlife. Right, Lori. And you may run up against this in Southeast Asia where shells from uh, endangered tortoises may be uh, sold and other parts of animals that are just not legal to sell. So use caution. For more information on this, you can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service travel and trade page or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, CITES. for more information, right? Now, you said finally before, but I'm going to say more finally is the following bird follow-up point. Okay? Please do. So when we moved into the current house, there's a fair amount of glass around this house, and we kept on hearing this banging, and it was basically the birds flying right into the glass windows. Oh, I hate that. Very disturbing. And uh, you'd send me out, and I'd see a stunned bird right on the ground. And sometimes he or she would fly away, and other times it was just too much of an impact. So we went out and got these bird decals that were specially made, and uh, we bought a bunch of them, and they are supposed to have some optical property. Well, they were shaped like birds and flowers, but they were supposed to have some property that uh, encouraged the birds not to fly right into the window. It didn't work as well as it should, and it wasn't our final solution. And after about uh, three to five months, I would say, they started turning brown and ugly, and I had to scrape them off. Remember that? You didn't do the scraping. <laughs> I was the scraper. And but so we replaced them. with. We replaced them. We had a better solution that I want to share, and that is the window film. These come in rolls or sheets, and they're very large, much larger, larger than the decals, and they are designed to put over a large part of a window to obscure it so people can't look in your house. They come in beautiful little patterns, many different kinds, and you get one of these for 20 bucks or something like that, a big roller sheet, and you just cut them up, and then you apply them wherever you need. Much better solution. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. Check us out at animalstodayradio.com, where you can listen to any of our prior shows. Check us out, animalstodayradio.com. I want to now welcome back to the show Darlene Kababel. She is the president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Welcome back to the show, Darlene. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Darlene, a few years ago, we interviewed a gentleman who rescued wolf-dog hybrids, and he was very strongly against that practice of breeding them or or creating them. How Mm -hmm. big a problem is wolf-dog hybrids these days, and does the center have a position on them? And, you know... To me, these individuals, irresponsible individuals, if you ask me, who want their dog to have a little wolf in them, it's really fraught with risks, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It can be, and that's that's a topic that is... It can be very controversial in so many ways, and our stance pretty much is wolves should be wolves and dogs should be dogs. And the reason for that is because so many so many problems. A lot of people have uh, problems sometimes owning an, just a domestic dog, let alone owning one that may have some wolf in it, and then it starts to have some wolf behavior, and then it gets out of control, and then that you know, that person or that family can't take care of that animal for whatever reason, and now they need to find a home for it. And the the problem with finding a home for it is, um, first of all, if they do take it to any shelter, uh, and you open your mouth and say, I have a wolf, and you use that word wolf, 
wolf-dog, wolf-hybrid, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they, they usually will euthanize that animal because a lot of states, a lot of counties uh, are not allowed to adopt them out mm. for one reason or the other, depending on, you know, where you're at. And a lot of people call them wolf-hybrids. That's actually an incorrect term. It's actually wolf-dog because a hybrid wouldn't technically be able to reproduce. So the, the proper word is a wolf-dog, uh, but a lot of people do call them wolf, uh, wolf-hybrid. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to relate to them as a wolf dog, um, and it is estimated at 250,000 that are born year uh, every year. 80% won't even reach their third birthday, and there again, the reason for that because uh, some people can't deal with them for one reason or another. And like I said earlier, they take them to a shelter or they try to find a sanctuary. The, the problem with sanctuaries is every single sanctuary in the United States is full beyond capacity. And I mean, look at your dog in rescues out there, right. and, and you know, your shelters and your humane societies and, and non-kill shelters or whatever, they're full because we have a lot of, unfortunately, irresponsible people in a disposable society to where they can't, you know, they don't, something happens in their life and, oh, just give it away or, or take it to, get rid of that problem and, and you know, life goes on. And uh, so many wonderful, wonderful animals that are euthanized every single year because somebody didn't take the responsibility uh, when adopting that animal, buying that animal, whatever. Um, so with the wolf dog, it is very popular because a lot of people like to own a piece of the wild. Or if you look at the wolf dogs or the wolves, they're beautiful, majestic animals. So sometimes people want to ha- have that little bit of wild you know, next to them. You can buy these animals anywhere from a few hundred all the way to a few thousand depending on who the breeder is and how much money they want to make out of it. And I've seen such exotic mixes that's like, oh, my gosh, that animal's been extinct for, you know, <laughs> that buffalo wolf for X amount of years or whatever, but the more exotic that they can put a title on it, the more money they can make out of these animals. The only true, true way to really find out if your, your wolf dog has wolf uh, traits is to do a DNA test. What happens is, say, if someone does get a true wolf dog, has a lot of wolf behavior to it, um, they oh, I'll raise it as a puppy, and it'll become a house dog. It's still a wild animal. That's the problem. Back, and then all of a sudden, now you've got this vicious animal, and then the wolf gets a bad name. Darlene, just like having an exotic animal as a pet, I feel it's unfair and almost inhumane to have a wolf-dog hybrid as a pet. I mean, you just don't know how much internal confusion, if you will, these animals are experiencing. They have wild characteristics. They have domesticated characteristics. They must experience some level of confusion as to what they are and how they should behave. You know, you're so right on that. If it's still part wolf, truly part wolf, they need space. They need hiding places. They they have instincts that you're taking that away from them. Right. And it's, it, it is that, too. They can become neurotic. Uh, they can, you'll see them to where they do neurotic behaviors um, because they're stuck. They're, they have no natural, you know, mental stimulation. And and without that, it's that is, that is cruel. Yeah, it's bad enough that we have these breeders out there breeding purebred dogs and designer dogs at a time when our shelters are at maximum capacity and at a time when we're killing five to six million dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. So now we have these same sort of selfish individuals breeding for profit, creating an animal whose genes are a mixture of wild and domesticated, and we're creating an animal that we're really not sure how content or happy their lives will be. And as you mentioned, many of which will end up being relinquished to a shelter where they will automatically be euthanized or they'll just be abandoned or dumped. 
Darlene Kabobel, president of Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. So Massachusetts and a number of other states are now considering registries for animal abusers, modeling them after sex offender registries. Do you think these are a good idea? Will they stop animal abuse? Bob Ferber, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Lori. Bob, what are the goals of these registries? The original goal of these, the sex offender registries was a tool for law enforcement to help them if there was a, a, a violent, like a rape or a, a sexual attack against somebody or a child molester, they would have a tool to be able to look back at people that have already been convicted and invest, use them and investigate them, talk to them. So it was a pool of people that might be suspects. Uh, as a re- but the, 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 the uh, function of it expanded when Megan's Law in California, which is rather famous law about a child uh, molester and killer, uh, it, it became available. People wanted to make this information available to the public. And so now this registry, and I believe it's true in a lot of other states, you can find out who has been registered as a sex offender and who lives in your neighborhood. So I think the goal is twofold. It was originally law enforcement, and then it got expanded to let people know that, you know, be cautious, somebody down the street is a convicted sex offender, watch your children if they're walking to school or something to that effect. Is the analogy with these registries for animal abusers to the sex offender registries, is that appropriate? Is this an extension of that thinking? I think it's applicable, Peter, to uh, animal abusers. Number one, law enforcement can use a list of animal abusers to be able to investigate other cases of animal cruelty. I have one right now where they're trying to find out somebody who, whoever mutilated some dogs and cats in a neighborhood. So they, it would be helpful if we had a registry to, so police could go back and look as who is anybody in the neighborhood already been convicted of that. But I think. Uh, the way sex offender registries help the neighbors to know who's next door, I think with animal abusers, the key way it can help is to prevent people from getting more animals. And this means that these registries or this information needs to be available to shelters, to rescue groups, um, to uh, maybe even pet stores, although I'm not personally in favor of stores that sell animals, but if they do, maybe at least they should have access to make sure that they're not selling it to somebody who's been convicted of animal cruelty. And, and breeders as well, Bob? Well, you know, you. I think we all three agree that, you know, we, we have some issues with breeders. Right, absolutely. But my feeling is no matter who it is, 
if you're transferring an animal to someone else, right. it would be helpful if you, whoever you are, whether you're a breeder, you're a hardcore rescuer, you're a shelter worker, to be able to know that whoever's taking the animal, at the very least, is not convicted of animal cruelty. My fear with animal cruelty is that animal cruelty laws also include things where people have done something that was, yes, it was a crime, but it's not something where they're a danger to the public. They may have, we, we have a lot of cases of animal neglect where people are guilty of the crime, but they did it because they couldn't take care of their animal because of money, because of a personal situation, because of something where they delegated it to someone else, something where they, they should be held accountable, but are they a danger to somebody else? Are they somebody that all rescue groups need to know about because of maybe an isolated, uh, excuse me, an isolated incident. So we have to worry about if there's a registry, how do you define who's in that registry of animal abusers and who isn't? And right now, you know, the same with the sex offender registries. It's not really, there's lawyers and legislators haven't come up with a good way to just keep these registries to the people that we really want to know about. So I think that's what we have to figure out. No one has uh, And another problem, by the way, with these registries is that for privacy reasons, you can find out, for example, if there's a sex offender down the street from you in California, but you can't find out what they did. You can't find out if they were a rapist, if they were a, a flasher. Same thing with if you have somebody down the street that's an animal abuser, wouldn't you want to know, was it dog fighting? Was it beating an animal, poisoning an animal, or was it something where they didn't give their dog enough food because they were having money problems and the dog, or they didn't have the medication for an animal? Yes, I'd want to know, but either way, I wouldn't want that person living next door to me. Well, I, <laughs> and, you know, and that's a fair statement, uh, but you can see how it, uh, it dilutes the, uh, yeah. the, the, the effectiveness of it for law enforcement, and I agree with, you know, there's an argument to be made, Lori, that the person who neglected a dog, I might want them down the street from me, because maybe I could, you know, make sure, check on them. Maybe they're not a physical danger to me. I, I've, I've certainly educated a number of people in my life who have been neighbors and friends who weren't doing what I thought was the appropriate thing for an animal and they're like oh thanks Bob well, so, we... well I, I see your point Lori and I probably agree with you that I don't want any animal abusers in my neighborhood I you know do I I've had numerous people as a prosecutor who were convicted of animal abuse but everybody agreed that this shouldn't get in the way of them being able to adopt another animal in the future because let's say they took a course or they took a, a class in better animal care or they made better arrangements to make sure that when they're taking care of their sick mother that there's somebody to care for their animal. Well, we sure, so, didn't, hesi we sure didn't hesitate to allow Michael Vick adopt another animal. I know. And that's a really good, you know, and that involves other legislation that we've talked about on your show about if you're convicted of animal abuse, should you be allowed to adopt another animal? And I think in a good way, states around the country are starting to include it in their animal cruelty laws that you can't have another animal if you've been convicted of certain types of animal abuse. In California and many other states, we have laws now that are starting to prohibit people from having an animal after they've been convicted of animal abuse, especially serious cases of animal abuse. I'm very much in favor of that. But 
without a sex, I mean, oh, sorry, <laughs> an animal of abuse registry, how are people going to know? So right now in California, you can be convicted of felony animal abuse, and you can go into your local, that per, same person can go into most local government shelters and rescue groups and get another animal, because none of those people can find out about mm-hmm. it. And that is probably the, the most important part of these new animal abuse registries, is that when people are uh, ordered by a judge to not have an animal, there literally is no system for enforcing that. These registries are the beginning of that. And in spite of all the issues and complications that I've talked about, I think overall it's, an, it's a very critical thing that we have to do to protect animals. Bob, we get the feeling around here also that people are ready for these and we're looking forward to seeing how it plays out in Tennessee. We'll speak with you further about it once it gets going. I think so. And, and I think that we, we all, no offense to people who live in Tennessee, but it's not a state that has been known to be a leader in animal rights and animal welfare. And I think it's very interesting and admirable that we're seeing states like this who are saying we're sick of it. Thanks. And so I think that it's a really good sign for animals around the world. We agree. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. Hey, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. back to the show. If you have companion animals and human kids at home, one of the trickiest or most delicate things you may need to deal with is helping your children understand and cope with the loss of one of their pets. Of course, every family is different and every child is different, but there are some useful guidelines we should be familiar with as the family goes through this process. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Sandra Grossman. Sandra is Certified Pet Loss and Bereavement Counselor and Vice President of the Association for Pet Loss and Bereavement and co-owner of Pet Loss Partners. Welcome to the program, Sandra. Thanks, Lloyd. Thanks for inviting me. Sandra, most of us adults had to experience the loss of a beloved companion animal, but how is it different when there are children involved and the family pet is about to die or does die? It's so important to to include children as much as possible. Very often, the loss of a pet is really the first loss that we experience. And so being able to go through the loss in a good and healthy way is going to allow children as they grow up and have to face other losses in their life to be able to face those losses in a healthy coping way as well. Do you find most children get through this successfully? Are they pretty resilient? I think that parents or, or, or the people who are their role models are really important in the way they handle it. For instance, if, if a mom or dad lose a beloved pet and allow their children to see them cry and see them feel sad and then, and then see them begin to cope with it, 
that's really healthy, and children will know, hey, we've lost somebody important to us, and it's okay to feel sad, and it's important, it's okay to grieve. You know, if, for instance, a, a child, you know, a family loses a pet, and the child says, oh, I really miss, you know, Fluffy, and the next day the dad comes home with a new Fluffy, so to speak. It's almost like saying it's not okay, you know, or, or yeah. you don't. You just go get another one. It's that whole replacement society that we try to stay away from. Right. Or if a child cries because they lost their dog or their cat, and the mom or dad says, don't cry, don't cry, it's part of life. You know, we don't cry over those kind of things. Then a child, as they get older, may think, you know, it's not okay to cry when you when you go through a law so it's important for parents to talk to their children about pet loss and allow them the time and go through the grieving process right and to see the parents go through them you know right. it's okay to cry in front of a child and depending on the age of the child i'm sure there must be different ways parents should approach these issues yeah absolutely and also it's important to to know just like there's no set way that everybody's going to go through grief. It is the same for children. So I'm going to give you some examples of, of what to do or not to do at certain ages. But that being said, you know your child best, and, and you know how they react best. So you may or may not, you may need to adjust this. Um, for instance, one thing that we always tell parents not to do when, especially when the child is younger, is you don't want to say that the dog or cat or whatever the animal was, was put to sleep. Children at that, that age are really literal. And so if they hear, again, you know, Fluffy was put to sleep and all of a sudden he doesn't come home, you know, he's taken out and he was put to sleep. They're going to be afraid that, uh-oh, if I go to sleep, what's going to happen to me? Am I not going to come back? Am I not going to be with my family? Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, so it's really important. And, and however, you've talked about death. If you want to say Fluffy was sick and, and he's in heaven now or, or however, you know, children like really young, say two or three, they don't really understand what death is. For, for children really young, drawing is a good way to let them express their feelings or what they think has happened. A lot of times kids will, you know, draw pictures of pets with, with angels on them, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, when, when they get to that preschool age, and, and depending on, again, on the relationship, a lot of times, too, they don't understand. They know what death is. They don't really understand the permanence of it. And so they may say, when is he coming back? And you may have to talk about that. If they were really close to him, you may see problems. Like like maybe if a child's going through potty training, they may kind of regress a little bit. Or if there may be sleep problems involved. So it's important to look for that. And a lot of times, again, because they don't understand what death is, they may think that maybe Fluffy died because they forgot to give him a treat one day. So it's important to let children know that it wasn't their fault and just reassure them that the family unit is intact and that yeah. nothing's going to happen to them. 
and, and then as they go into start getting into middle school, uh, they they start hearing a little bit more about death, and and they do know that it's irreversible. But again, you may see certain behaviors. So if Fluffy died, and and you know you may find them being a little bit more clingy and asking a lot of questions and really wanting to know. And again, it's going to be based on the individual child, but you kind of deal with what you think they can handle. So, but you may see a lot of children, maybe, you know, seven to 10, asking a lot of questions. What should parents do or say to their human children in anticipation of a companion animal's death? You know, and and again, that's a, a really good point too. You may want to talk to your veterinarian to see because different veterinarians will handle things different way. I think it's important to let a child know, and, and often, you know, especially when they're a little older, when they're seven, eight, nine, they can see that that the dog or cat's getting older. They can they know, you know, you're going to the vet. And again, it, it's based on the individual child what you want to tell them or how much you want to tell them. If they say, is, you know, Fluffy going to die, you can say, well, he's very sick and we're trying to do everything we can to help him. If you're going to have to have the the pet euthanized and you let the child know, they may say, you know, I want to be there. And you may want to explain a little bit what's going to happen. Again, I really suggest talking to the vet about what they think and how they handle it. A lot of vets, veterinary practices today have grief rooms, so they don't do it in a sterile setting. They'll actually have a kind of low lighting room with couches and a rug, and sometimes they'll bring the pet into the room and on the rug or on the couch. And that's a more comforting setting. There are some also some good books out there that, and and I really recommend um, getting a book. And and especially, you know, if a child is seven or eight and they're younger, you can read to them, or if they're seven, eight, ten, reading with them. You know, um, when they're adolescents, adolescence is a a hard time anyway. They're trying to figure out who they are, what life's about. But they may be more, if they've developed a strong bond, especially, you hear a lot, only children, you know, will think of that pet as their brother or sister, and they may really want to be there. Yeah. And I think it's important to allow that as long as they understand in terms of that they get. Sandra, are memorials helpful? Exactly. And, and that's such a helpful way to help. I think no matter how old the child is, whether it's a really young child and they just, you just draw pictures with them, but to allow children to maybe write something or draw something and, and decide, are we going to bury the pet? Is the pet going to be cremated? What do we want to do? How do we want to do? Do we want to get balloons and write messages on the balloon and make it a family decision and, and something you do together as a family? You could even create a scrapbook together. Sandra, any final comments? I think it's really important that people understand that children know a lot more than we give them credit for. There's a wonderful story that a vet wrote about, and he talked about being asked to come to a 
family's home to euthanize an old collie. And when he got to the home, there was a four-year-old little boy, and the mom and dad had decided that they wanted the little boy to be present. And so the vet went about getting the, the dog ready, and the parents were very teary, and, and the little boy just sat there watching, and the procedure happened, and again, the parents were really crying, and the little boy just went over to the dog and was looking at him and patting him, and he gave him a hug, and the parents were sitting off to the side and talking, and they were saying, you know, well, he probably really doesn't understand what's happening here. And then the parents started to talk to the vet, and they said, well, why, why is it that animals have a, such a short lifespan? And the little boy at that point turned, and he said, well, I know. And, and obviously the parents and the vet were pretty surprised because they didn't even think he was paying attention. And they said, why? Why do you think that's true? And so he said, well, when people come to Earth, they have so much to learn. They have to learn how to live a good life and be kind and to love people. But when animals come to Earth, they already know that, so they don't have to stay as long. What a sweet story. Dr. Sandra Grossman, I know you're also available for telephone consultation. How can my listeners reach you? Sure, absolutely. They can either email me at sandy-la, like Los Angeles, at petlosspartners.com, or they could call the number there, which is 818-421-1516, and I'd be glad to speak to them about children and pet loss or anything else related to pet loss, and to let you know that we also do workshops for different organizations on these topics as well. Pet Bereavement Counselor, Dr. Sandra Grossman, thank you for your expertise. Absolutely. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Every day in the United States, tens of thousands of puppies and kittens are born. Unfortunately, there are not enough homes for these cats and dogs. One unfixed female cat and her offspring can be the source of more than 400,000 cats in seven years. One female dog and her unfixed offspring can produce about 67,000 puppies. Too many cats and dogs are unwanted, so they end up being neglected, abandoned, or turned into shelters. Millions of healthy pets are killed in shelters annually in the U.S. More than 50% of the animals that enter our country's shelters get euthanized. Fortunately, there is a solution to prevent this unnecessary killing of animals. Have your pet spayed or neutered. 
If you want a new dog or cat, rescue one from a shelter and save a life. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Peter, did you know December 4th is International Cheetah Day? Hmm. So I thought I'd talk a few minutes about cheetahs. Peter, did you know the cheetah is the fastest land animal in the world? I knew that. Reaching speeds up to 113 kilometers per hour, which is about 70 miles per hour. Mm. And they can go from zero to 60 miles an hour in only three seconds. Of course, their slender, long-legged body is built for speed. And they can make these quick and sudden turns in pursuit of their prey, and they have exceptionally keen eyesight. When they're running, they use their tails to help them steer and turn in the direction they want to, like a rudder of a boat. Usually their chases are over in less than a minute, right? So they're not long-distance runners, they're sprinters. So here's a question for you, Peter. How can cheetahs be distinguished from other big cats? A, by their smaller size. B, by their spotted coats. C, by their smaller heads and ears. Oh, that's tricky. I'm going to go with C. Actually, all of the above. Oh. They also have very distinctive tear stripes that stretch from the corner of the eye to the side of the nose. Cheetahs only need to drink once every three to four days. Cheetahs are diurnal animals, thus more active during the day, and therefore they do their hunting during the light hours. They rely on the tall grasses for camouflage when hunting. Sadly, and like so many of our majestic, beautiful animals in the wild, their numbers are dwindling. In 1900, there were over 100,000 cheetahs across their historic range. Today, an estimated 9,000 to 12,000 cheetahs remain in the wild in Africa. And another very interesting fact, did you know that unlike other big cats, cheetahs cannot roar? Oh, that's interesting. However, they they purr mm-hmm. on both the inhale and exhale like domestic cats do. Yeah, I wonder how they use that purr. That's interesting. Does it make you want to hug a cheetah? No, it does not. <laughs> so there you go, Peter. International Cheetah Day, December 4th. Thanks, Lori. You're listening to Animals Today. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com and check us out on Facebook. I now want to welcome Tam Warner-Minton. She is the author of a new book called All Fish Faces, Photos and Fun Facts About Tropical Reef Fish. Welcome, Tam. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is a sweet little colorful book. Why did you put it together? Why did you write it? I, I wrote it because I want people who are not scientists and probably who aren't people that go to the beach very often to meet and see sea creatures uh, because we really need to be doing something about preserving our oceans. And I think the way to do that is to get people to care about the animals that live within it. It features a uh large variety of beautiful color photos taken by you, except for perhaps the one or two that have you in them. Uh, What's your background in underwater photography and scuba? Well, I've been diving for about 30 years. Uh, I'm not a professional photographer. Um, I'm I'm certainly an enthusiastic one. Um, I love to document the ocean world. It's it's like being on a different planet. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted to bring it into their home. If I can't take them to the ocean, I want to bring the ocean to them. And I could imagine a reader, uh, particularly uh, a younger one, paging through this and just uh, letting their imagination uh, take them away. 
Aren't they colorful? They are really nice. And you've also decided to focus on their faces. Why is that? Well, you know, I know it's it might sound silly to people who are not um, in the ocean a lot, but fish have personalities. And getting up close and looking at their faces, I think almost humanizes them for people. Um, They can relate to, you know, two eyes and a nose and a mouth. So the photo of the huge grouper, tell me about that. Uh, What was it like to be next to such a huge creature? (laughs) That grouper was really big. Um, You're talking about the potato cod, I'm sure, Uh, the fish that I was with in Australia. Those animals are just huge. And I wasn't afraid or anything, but they were feeding them. So they were kind of darting in quite quickly. So my face kind of reflects the fact that I didn't know where, which direction they would be coming from. Yeah. So indeed, you've traveled the world diving. What's your favorite reef spot, say, in North America? Um, I would probably say Cozumel. I've been diving there for 30 years. The reef that I like the best is Columbia Shallows. Uh, It's just full of life. Turtles and a shark now and then, which I know probably sounds kind of scary, but it's not. It's it's exciting to see them. The fish life in Columbia Shallows is just phenomenal. Uh, And the coral is incredible. It's just mountains of coral. Since you mentioned coral and we're talking about animals that inhabit these reefs, what's your understanding of what's happening to the reefs around the world? People are talking about them bleaching and dying. Is it really a crisis or is that get overblown? No, it's very much a crisis. And one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write the book because you know, you look at these animals, these creatures, without a coral reef, they will not survive. And if they don't survive, then the animals that feed upon them won't survive. And those are the animals that we eat. We get medicine from the reefs. We get food and nourishment from the reef. And we get 70% of our GDP is from the ocean products, not from the land-based products. So it's very important for humans that those reefs remain pristine, and they are dying at an alarming rate. And since you mentioned uh, food that we eat, uh, maybe I'd like to raise this and maybe you can explain or elaborate because you advocate the consumption of certain sea creatures uh, using resources from the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch. Don't you think it would be better just to not eat any of these fish at all and go plant-based? That's what we like. Well, yes, of course. Uh, if if we can all become vegetarians, that would be the best thing. But I, I don't think that that is going to happen, especially in the United States, where we are a meat-eating, carnivorous nation. So if you're going to eat fish, I think it's good to have a source where you can see what is fished sustainably. I'm a little bit more, quote-unquote, optimistic than you are. I'm hoping for a plant-based world. How's that? I think that would be fantastic. Okay, okay. I I am all for it. Great, Tam. It's Tam Warner-Mitten. The beautiful book is called All Fish Faces. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 